This is The Nexus, and I am Art Swift. In this episode, I'll be talking with someone who's an undecided voter in the 2020 presidential election. Gabe Eisner is a Republican who lives in California, but he's dissatisfied with the president and may vote Democratic. He's also a member of the Log Cabin Republicans, an organization that has come under fire from the gay community for some of its stances. Also, I'll be presenting my 2020 Democratic Power Rankings. How do the 15 declared candidates for the nomination stack up? From Bernie to Tulsi, we'll be analyzing them all. And now, the Nexus. Welcome to a new feature on the show where I discuss the candidates for president and offer my 2020 Democratic power rankings. Here I will rank those running for the nomination based on polling, media mentions, and that hard-to-define quality called buzz. I will update this every month. We have 15 declared candidates in the race right now, so let's get to the list. At number one, Bernie Sanders. He jumped into the race in February and continued to have a good month in March. He's polling well, raising lots of money. He's more mainstream than last time in 2016 and has a broader message. Number two is Kamala Harris. The California senator is rising in the polls and showing that she is built to last in this race. Many of Hillary Clinton's staffers are working for her on this campaign, so Harris is acquiring an establishment edge. Still not close to frontrunner Bernie, though. Number three is Beto O'Rourke. Beto made a big splash this month as he raised $6 million in 24 hours' time, garnered a slew of media coverage for his every move, and of course, had the glossy cover of Vanity Fair, shot by Annie Leibovitz. Does all this sound shallow? Sure, but that's politics in 2019, and Beto is a rock star. At number four, Elizabeth Warren. The Massachusetts senator is facing a conundrum. She's had some of the best, most cutting-edge policy proposals in the race so far and is getting a lot of headlines. But this is not translating into polling magic. My sense is her style and delivery are off-putting to voters, and no amount of great policy is going to change that. Let's see if she tempers her over-enthusiastic style. Number five, Pete Buttigieg. Mayor Pete came on strong this month and is poised to go even higher due to fawning media coverage and some favor favorable, if not questionable, polling. The Emerson poll in Iowa shows him in third, yet it only polled 249 people and has a sky-high margin of error of 6.2%. Is the mayor really third in Iowa? Beats me. But it's clear the fly-by-night polling we all bought into in 2016 is back with a vengeance. In any case, Mayor Pete is lean and hungry, much like Jimmy Carter was in 1976. And through facial expressions and demeanor, the South Bend mayor actually reminds me of the unknown Georgia governor who came out of nowhere to win. At number six, Cory Booker. Now we are heading into the second tier of candidates here in our power rankings. Booker should be doing better, but he's not. What is it? His speaking style? Ties to Wall Street? Lack of rationale for a campaign? He's doing so-so in the polls, but is a disappointment so far. At number seven, 
Amy Klobuchar. Amy had a better February than March due to entering the race and the scandal involving her employees. Even though that was bad press, it was still press and got people talking about her. In March, not as many people were talking about her. Number eight, Andrew Yang. He is moving on up in the Democratic field thanks to a strong performance on Joe Rogan's ultra-successful podcast. A fair amount of disaffected Trump voters are looking at Yang, though he is still nowhere in the polls. At number nine, John Hickenlooper. He entered the race this month and didn't make any raves. Doesn't seem to have a central issue to run on either. Number 10, Kirsten Gillibrand. Like Booker, she should probably be higher due to being a U.S. senator and having name recognition over a decade's time. But she is in such a corner that she is fundraising based on the worst decision she made in the Senate, bashing Al Franken and calling for him to resign. Now Kirsten is saying she's under attack for that move. Guess what? She's right. At number 11, John Delaney. We're into the third tier now, and while Delaney had an interesting town hall on CNN this month, still isn't moving. Number 12, Julian Castro. Castro continues to tumble as his campaign is a disaster. Needs a complete shakeup and a brand new messaging. Number 13, Tulsi Gabbard. Another campaign that isn't catching fire due to poor management and past statements on issues, notably Syria. At number 14, Jay Inslee. New to the race, talking about climate change, nobody cares. And at number 15, someone who I thought was making solid moves last month, but has tumbled from sight, Marianne Williamson. Oprah's spiritual guru was getting some great press in February, but has virtually disappeared in March. You may be saying, where's Joe Biden on your power rankings? Until he actually jumps into the race and stops being coy, he will not be on this list. Let's see if he enters in April. My guess is he will, but can he overtake Bernie, Kamala, and Beto? We will soon know. Next up, now that you've heard about all these Democrats, I'm going to speak with a Republican voter who is dissatisfied with President Trump and is actually considering voting Democratic. Stay with us. Gabe Eisner grew up on Long Island and attended Tulane University in New Orleans before settling in Los Angeles. He works as a tech consultant across a variety of industries and sits on the board of the Log Cabin Republicans in Los Angeles, which means he is a gay Republican. Gabe is in his 30s, was a Democrat for many years, but in the last few years has changed parties and his perspective. He is at the moment an undecided voter. How does he view politics and the 2020 election? Gabe Eisner, welcome to the Nexus. Thank you for having me, Art. Happy to be here. So you don't have your mind made up for president yet. Why not? No, <laughs> I think that's a good thing. I think it's very early. Um, I'm a moderate voter. I'm an independent. So it, it's very, very early for me. Okay. Um, you're a Republican, though, but you have said that you were considering Democratic candidates. What kind of Democrats appeal to you? Yes, and that's still true. Um, I like to keep an open mind. Um, I like to hear the debate. I, um, I appreciate when it comes to Democrats, um, 
at least in the uh, modern age. I like to hear from Democrats who have kind of a calmer response to Trump because, you know, Trump has dominated the the media and um, has had sort of too loud of a voice. So I think the antidote to that is not to punch back twice as hard as uh, we're getting with uh, responses like from AOC uh, and, and Maxine Waters. I think those loud voices are a necessary balance and foil to him. But I just think the next president of the United States needs to be someone who brings us together, who's not so punchy. And so what I'm looking for, I'm describing a little bit of temperament in what I'm looking for from the Democrats. And I think we have that in a, in a few different candidates. But let's unpack that a bit um, in terms of temperament and such. Um, can you go further into why, what's the temperament that you think does work for a candidate in this cycle and what does not? What are some attributes? Well, I, I think every cycle is unprecedented. So, you know, in the last election, we had two parties, both both trying to steal the limelight. In that kind of environment, I think, you know, maybe Trump's worked better, but I don't think either one did particularly well. I mean, voter turnout was, was pretty poor all the way around. But I think in this cycle, what what will win is has to be a relative response to what Trump's strategy is. And I don't think it's possible or desirable to be any louder than Trump. So mm-hmm. I think the, the other place to go is to be that calmer voice, um, completely leaving out policy or politics. Right, right. Well, let's, let's first, before we even go further into that, what do you think of President Trump? Um, I am not a huge fan of President Trump um, as a person. Um, I, like many people, thought that he was a joke when he announced his candidacy. I am still not a fan of President Trump, but we just don't have that many options. I mean, right now, how I see things is he he won uh, the election, I I think, for the last two years. I've been hoping that uh, in any way that I doubted his judgment or doubted his character, and I still have grave doubts about those things, that he would prove me wrong. And in a few cases, he has. But uh, most cases, he hasn't. Uh, most cases, he's stayed true to his um, pretty uh, questionable moral character. Mm-hmm. He's stayed true to his pretty questionable judgment. But what I see is even the, even the small percentage of things that maybe he surprised me on um, or that you know he's done well despite predictions to the contrary – have really been underreported or not reported at all if you t- if you think about some media channels. So I tend to be a little bit of a defender of of Trump in those small number of circumstances where I actually think he deserves a little bit of credit, even if it's ten percent of the things you you know. I I think it'd be it would be unwise and I think it's untrue to say that he's a hundred percent negative, a hundred percent bad, has messed up absolutely everything is wrong all the time. Um, so uh, that's what I, that's how I tend to see president Trump. <laughs> what are some of his successes? Then we'll talk about some of his deficiencies. Yeah. Well, I mean, so in terms of his uh, approach to uh, gay issues, number one, I think if, if I can't say he's been the least negative on, on gay rights, um, 
I I could say he's been the most positive of any of the Republicans that have ever run for office. I think you have to give that to Trump. And that may not even be saying that much. But um and that's not a thing that made me a Republican in the first place, by the way. It's just something that I that I believe when he was running and he held up a flag, a gay flag, I said, Well, no Republican's ever done that before. The only candidate in America that had ever ever done that was oh well not even America, in North America was Justin Trudeau. Mm-hmm. So I think that's quite a statement, even if you, you think he was pandering to you, even if you don't trust his motives because he's a nasty Republican and we have to doubt all of their motives. I think what that is a statement that uh, that says a lot. Um, uh, and I'm not happy with his um, his uh, taking off uh, uh, mention of LGBT rights off the White House website. I'm not a fan of uh, the trans bans or the trans bathroom debate and Actually, I don't think Trump has been involved in that personally. I think that's kind of been uh, something that his supporters or uh, certain members of his administration or policy has tried to be um, clamped down on on what we do with bathrooms. But Trump doesn't care. Trump said to Caitlyn Jenner, you can use my bathroom. So, I mean, I think Trump as a person is, if not lukewarm, uh, pretty warm on LGBT issues. Um Overall, and another issue I uh, I think Trump's done well on is the economy. I think you have to hand it to Trump. Two mm-hmm. two plus years in to his administration, I had doubts. I still have doubts whenever I see the stock market. I'm kind of doing funny things, but um, overall, to start from with the economy that Obama had, and and to to follow all the predictions that we would have a correction because the economy had been good for so long and Obama had done such a good job on the economy to still say two years in, two years in, it, the president who is in office, who's who's to credit. And we'll see what the next two years will bring as well. But um, I think Trump has done an excellent job on the economy. Um, I think he's, um, I, I, I might be, uh, I may, might be out of things. Um, his, his rhetoric really, I think, has done him a great disservice. I think his, his foray into conversations about redoing our trade deals, mm-hmm. um, is at least something that needs to take place. Um, I think the tax cuts were good. Um, and I think the conversations happening on immigration are, are things that are important to me. But in terms of the accomplishments, I think that they're, they're sort of few. To do well, I will say one last thing on, on the economy. When a president has a, a huge success around the economy, um, that is the tends to be the, the tide that, that uh, carries all boats. Oh, no question. That, yeah, I mean, that, that reduces crime. It, uh, you know, people are working. They have jobs. Um, our, our uh, you know, our economy is thriving. That that has a whole host of, of other ramifications that are very good. So when the economy is good, I can't overstate how good that is for, for Americans, I think. But let me go back to the LGBT issue a bit because you had said um, you liked that he had held up a flag and has at least been lukewarm on the issues. I mean, Democrats, liberals, especially those who are gay would say he's abhorrent to the gay community, that he's, he's as bad as possible, the worst. Where is that coming from? And what are some of the, is it just that he's okay and that makes him better than other Republicans? Or is there something that we're missing 
that he's doing that, that may not be heralded because from my standpoint, it seems almost like he's at best getting by and at worst is creating bands and, and we're hearing, you know, um, service members who are uh, transgender losing rights and, and such. Can you explain a little bit further how he has been good? Well, I, I actually don't have the examples myself, so I was about to ask you if you have examples, and you started to say a little bit about the trans members of the military losing rights. I would like to know if, if you have any more to say about that, because I, I, haven't, I haven't heard of um, members of the military losing their rights. Um, what I heard on, on trans, um, the trans military ban is that uh, the government wouldn't pay for medical assistance for for uh, trans people that are that are dependent on on uh, medications to be to serve in infantry, but I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't support a blanket ban. I don't think that's a healthy thing, and I think that's probably shorthand for what the policy actually was. But um, I just don't see any animus there. Really, I don't see animus on either side unless I'm presented evidence. So usually, when I have this conversation, you ask me why why gay people think that Trump has such an awful record on on gay rights, I actually don't think that his record is awful. I think mm-hmm. that there are certain things that you can select um, and say this has been the worst president you know, ever on, on gay issues. I don't think that that's exactly fair when actually probably what's happening is cherry picking. Um, and I think that usually the answer that I get right off the bat is Pence. You know, Pence is, is very anti-gay, so how can you support a president that supports a vice president that supports these things? You start to make up a few bridges Mm -hmm. um, is usually where people go with this. And, you know, you can keep going with that. You know, I'm not a fan of Pence. I wouldn't want Pence to be president. So, so this is sort of a logical problem I have, which is, um, okay, we hate Trump. We don't like Trump. He's no good. Well, then I'll follow you with that to what should happen next. Well, he should be impeached because he's terrible. Okay, what's going to happen when he gets impeached? Well, Pence is going to become president. <laughs> okay, is that good? Um, I don't know if that's an improvement. Um, that's the guy that's even worse than Trump. And the reason, it, Pence is the reason that you're saying that Trump is awful. So you want to put a worse guy in there for gay rights? I don't really understand that. Right. Right. Well, that does seem to be a conundrum. And, uh, and I would tend to agree with you that the president is not nearly as bad as some of his detractors say on that particular issue, um, which I find to be an interesting fact. But yes, a lot of times people say, well, it's not just one person who's the president, that there's an entire administration and Mike Pence has this horrific record in Indiana and and such, and thus there is that kind of association. And I think that there's a lot of people who look at it that way, and then there are a lot of folks who shrug and say, well, who cares about the vice president? And in a case where impeachment is on the table, I do think that that becomes a little more pressing, but I can definitely see where you're coming from on that. Yeah, and I have to say something else about the Republican Party in general because this is usually where the conversation goes. It starts with Trump, um, it moves to Pence. That's a dead end. So then, where people move to is, well, what about the Republican Party? And mm-hmm. Mike Pence is just a reflection of the Republican Party in general. Why do you support a party that Gabe that uh, that has negative views of gays and 
And what I say to that is, I mean, number one, polling numbers show that uh, Republican millennials actually more than half, about 60 percent, actually are fine with gay marriage. And so I'm a millennial. I'm a Republican. And I'm in that oh, more than 60 percent. Um, when you, you ask gay Republicans, of course, the number is much higher. Um, but millennials are getting this. Uh, if you if you, you poll millennials, the people that aren't getting it are, um, you know, older conservatives, mm-hmm. um, more religious folks, and actually religious people on both sides of the aisle. That, those are the religious people that from the Democratic side that were against Prop 8, that voted yes on, on Prop 8, that were responsible for Prop 8 passing in California. All you have in California is a bunch of Democrats. Um, so, <laughs> and, and I'm sure a lot of Republican, a lot of religious Republicans. So I don't think it's either the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, they do not vote as a block. There are tendencies, but um, when I look at the Republican Party, do I want it to be better on gay issues? Absolutely, that's why I'm here. That's what the log cabin Republicans is about. It's about acceptance from within. Um, Absolutely. Well, that's, that's uh, and that, that sort of brings me to your personal, your political journey, I guess I could say. Um, obviously, as we said at the outset, you have switched parties, but yet you're you're potentially flexible for 2020. Uh, tell me about your political journey. Where did it start? How did you end up where you are now? Yeah. Um, so I uh, <laughs> like in in keeping with your your uh, your introduction. I grew up a Democrat. I was always a Democrat. I grew up in New York City, um, Long Island. And, uh, and grew up around pretty much only Democrats. My dad, I guess, was a, a Reagan Republican just, uh, just years before I was born, but he never talked to, about, to us about politics. And, um, you know, I spent all of my college years as a Democrat, but, um, I went to school in Louisiana in, at Tulane, which is a pretty politically mixed school, actually. It's pre- has pretty good, um, pretty good numbers on, on the uh, political diversity. Which was really good for me because even though I was still a Democrat and couldn't imagine how anyone would be a Republican, uh, there were a lot of really bright, educated people from both sides that were having conversations that the rest of us really just don't hear. And so for the first time, I was starting to hear paradoxes. I was starting to hear logical problems that hadn't been articulated because for me, being from New York, if you're an educated person, if you're intelligent, if you mean well, you're a Democrat, even if they don't get it right all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you start to see little holes in that, in that, uh, uh, in that presupposition. When I moved to San Francisco, some of the holes I saw included, like I was saying, Prop 8. How could Democrats vote for, vote yes on 8? Can you um, define how- what Prop 8 was for those who might not know it? Of course, yes. Prop 8 uh, was short for Proposition 8, which was a landmark proposition, California statewide proposition that uh, was a ban on gay marriage. There was no such legislation on gay marriage. Uh, There were, I believe, civil unions before Proposition 8. And so actually, uh, what I heard at the time was that uh, the Mormon church, uh, based in Utah, actually campaigned pretty heavily to, uh, in California, to not have California pass um, gay marriage. In, in other words, the the vote yes was actually to instate a ban on gay marriage, which was completely unnecessary, and it was a religious effort to um, 
to interfere in California state politics in order to have, I guess, a, a precedent effect on how other states would vote. And, you know, we know now uh, California was actually one of the last states as a state to pass um, to legalize gay marriage. But there have been many other states that followed suit, really, I think, because of the efforts that that succeeded and then failed to prevent gay marriage. And you try to put the genie back in the bottle, it doesn't work so well. So that was Prop 8. Um, and my mention of that is, um, is to say, um, getting to see how Democrats actually voted, a lot of religious Democrats, a lot of conservative Democrats, which you have maybe less of nowadays, but, but were, uh, definitely a voting block. Um, you had, uh, definitely a larger contingent of Hispanic, black, Asian, religious, um, Democrats that were not interested in allowing gay people to get married. Mm-hmm. So that was one thing that, that tipped me off and said, why, you know, okay, if it's not about Republican and Democrat, it's really about, okay, so then it's about religious versus non-religious. Uh, well, that doesn't, you know, the polling numbers support that a little bit. There's a correlation, but it's not the whole story. Well, okay, it's about educated versus not educated. And you try to cobble together these factions of, of, of people and these voting blocks um, and these demographics, and they don't all tell a cohesive story. So, okay, so let's just cobble together all the adjectives. So let's take, it's really about <laughs> the uneducated, um, Republican, religious, you know, white, straight, right? It's just all this adjective because I can't make it mean one thing. It's just a series of correlations in individual voting blocks. Now I'm just going to string those together and make it mean something. Um, I think... Now more than ever, there is a thing that certain um, certain groups believe, and there is a value that I don't hold that is underneath that uh, that policy or that preference. Um, and because I didn't understand it, I'm not justifying it by saying that there is a value under, underneath that. I'm saying that it's a value that I don't hold and I don't understand. Right. So, so. When I <laughs> go ahead, no, I'm just, but I'm wondering how did you then get to be a Republican through all of that? It's a good question. Um, so I started asking questions. I started engaging with people that disagree with me, um, not always on gay marriage because there really weren't that many people to talk to. How it started for me was when Trump was running, really, and I was no fan of Trump. Um, so this has nothing to do with him, but I started asking people why you would be, um, why you would be a Republican, why you would vote on, on fiscally conservative issues, why, um, I started actually asking people within my own circles too, why do you like Hillary? Um, do you, what do you think of her scandals? And not knowing much, I was just asking questions, but the answers that I got were, uh, they were amazing. <laughs> the answers I got were, shut up. Don't you want her to win? Don't ask about that. That's, I mean, like, this is actually something mean, I got. Didn't Those weren't the only answers I got. I'm not saying Democrats are just one, one base, but that was a lot of answers that I got. And that was very unsettling to me. And I started to say to myself, oh, they're not interested in nuance. They're not interested in in having the conversation, as they always say, we need to have this conversation. They weren't interested in that. They were interested in winning. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that I ha- at least had good questions, and I wasn't trying to be 
a I wasn't trying to be a um, you know a problem. I was really just interested in why you believe what you believe. If you think this person is a good candidate, what do you think of their their shortfall? Surely everyone does. Mm-hmm. What do you think of their answers? And uh, and the answers I got were pretty hostile and emotional. And uh, that is the first time that I started to be treated like the enemy. And I started defending Trump supporters uh, really as out of devil's advocacy. And I started saying, well, how am I supposed to know that you are you have the truth at heart? How am I supposed to know that uh, if you were wrong, that you would admit it? Because that's what I was told all along. Right. Democrats did. They're the moral party and they're the. They're the do-gooders, and they're interested in truth. So that was a problem for me. It, it, so I'm piecing together almost a sense of uh, the frustration you were having with Hillary Clinton, her campaign, her supporters, her platform sort of drove you away. Is that accurate, would you say? I wouldn't say that that's accurate in regards to Hillary Clinton. I didn't have anything against Hillary. I was rooting for Hillary. <laughs> I think it didn't have to do with any one candidate or any one face. It just had to do with I was asking questions about the most prominent person in the Democratic Party. And at the time, that happened to be Hillary. I wanted a woman president. I wanted a black president. I I want, uh, you know, I certainly always wanted Democrats. And um, I was rooting for her. And when she, you know, started to fumble the debates and um, give kind of half-hearted answers and just didn't really convince me of what we were going to get, I didn't believe the sales pitch. Um, I, I, and I had questions. The answer, the, the response that I got from my friends was um, very disappointing. It was very disappointing. It was, if you're a good gay person, you will do this thing. You will vote for her anyway. Why wouldn't you vote for her? What? I don't understand why you would let Trump win. And my answer to that is, oh, well, no, I don't want Trump to win, but no one deserves my vote. Um, I have I have questions. I mean, who else am I going to ask but my friends? And they were really unwilling to have that conversation. No, I understand. Um yeah. Um, what I'm trying to get at is, and I think this might be a, a common issue, is that what then is actually appealing in 2019 as we speak now about the Republican Party? Well, I think we're playing a game of, uh, <laughs> of uh, lesser of evils. Um, and for me, I think for a lot of us, the... Our politics comes down to culture nowadays. It didn't used to be like that. It it uh, it, it it definitely still about policy, mm-hmm. but politics is downstream of culture. You have a um, you have a media and uh, a a world of of entertainment and the university system that are very much to the left. Um, a lot of them don't hide it. Some of them do. Um, and you have other cultural institutions like the military and church, uh, your religion that are to the right. Um, I am very anti-established uh, media. I'm, I am a huge fan of democratized media because I think that 
is just more honest and less beholden to advertisers and um, and uh, traditional messaging that I think actually the the blocks of celebrity and um, and entertainment news are basically interchangeable. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that whole that whole group think is is doing no service to the American people. Um, and that's what makes me a Republican today. Um, I, so it's I an anti-establishment it kind of sense. Um, I think you could say that because I also, again, consider myself to be an independent, as, you know, practically speaking. I don't consider myself to be far right, and I don't consider myself to be really a, even a conservative. I consider myself to be moderate, leans right, and the reason why I lean right and the reason why I... I uh, I believe I have some cultural um, affinities or loyalties to Republicans is that I distrust the primarily the media, which is left or center left, if you ask me. Mm, okay, so that's and there are a few <laughs> a few policy areas to back that up as well, but um, but that's how it started. So there's almost like a prevailing ethos in a way that the media is left leaning. Um, you find that problematic, um, perhaps in certain cases, even oppressive, I would imagine. And it's, uh, it's a thing where you start to feel almost like, uh, it's almost like maybe a rebellious spirit. It's, it's, it's declaring a certain independence from what the establishment, the elitists are promulgating. Is that I think that's definitely how it starts. I think that's definitely how it starts. Um, you know, all I did was was watch CNN and um, uh, maybe not MSNBC, CNBC. Um, I watched all the left-wing media before, and I would watch things over the course of the election, like, uh, you know, the uh, there's there's offensive Halloween costumes, and uh, and you know, the media was trying to notify us of these things, and um, and I just, and even in the first uh, first few beats of um, of Trump's presidency, that the White House Easter egg hunt was a disaster, wasn't well organized. I started to think, are they trying to report the best news they can? Are they trying to give us the honest truth, or are they trying to find things now? Because I didn't have an opinion of Trump yet. So that is what started, I'll say the the questioning. Mm-hmm. Of what exactly we're doing here, what exactly the role of the media should be. And once I started questioning that and I started seeking out other voices, um, pundits on the right, and um, I I stopped reading the LA Times. I started reading the, the Wall Street Journal, um, which is a, a center. Um, some people on the left would say center-right, but the mm-hmm. polling numbers show it's, it's pretty down the middle, um, according to most people. Um you know, I started to pay attention to other sources. I started seeing, oh, they're, they have a point. They have a point when it comes to fiscal responsibility. They have a point when it comes to balancing out rights with responsibilities for those rights. They have a point when it comes to lower taxes is good for the economy. And I understand the other side of that, which is that you need, you need a certain amount of taxes to run government programs and you need um, we want to do more and we want to be more helpful and take care of each other. And I understand all those things, but I just think that 
what I started to see is, is that both of those stories are part of a balanced picture that can actually be a, a thing that brings us together. And mm. as I started to see myself as a person that now understood both sides and could bring together uh, folks from both sides, I started to see that the, that the right was willing to entertain me on that, and the left wanted no part of it. And all my friends were on the left, so that, that is where I started to say, okay, one of these, one of these uh, of the parts of this couple just doesn't want it to work. Understood. And I mean, I, so it seems like the the dilemma here in a way is, as I see it on kind of an editorial standpoint, is what you're describing is a moderate to right sort of mentality, which has held forth in American life for decades, certainly in the last 50 years or so. Um, The issue is that President Trump and the administration isn't often in league with that. It is somewhat, I would argue, but not as much as I think classical conservatives would like it to be. And I see there being a yearning amongst a lot of people to have more of that classical conservative or centrist, whatever you want to call it, um, situation happening. And I, and it seems like with you perhaps, and with certainly people I know that they don't feel like Trump is speaking for them in 2019. They definitely don't think a lot of what they see with the democratic party is speaking for them, but they're trying to find someone or something to thread that needle. And Mm -hmm. is that, does that capture it in a way? It does, actually, because what people want to talk about these days is Trump. They're interested in what Trump's doing, what what Trump represents. If I say I'm a Republican, immediately people think of Trump. They think you, you're associated with Trump. I am not associated with Trump. Um, I, I am not interested in defending any of his positions or his policies. I've named a few things that I like, but for the most part, I think you can tell, I mean... It, I named three things and then I, that was the end of my list. I, I think that I am, I'm not really interested in, in, uh, most of his policy or most of his execution or any of his rhetoric. Mm-hmm. But when I, when I say, um, that there are two sides to a story and how people read that statement is to say, well, if you think there's two sides to any of Trump's story, you and I have nothing in common. If that's your answer, then we're not going to have any any ground. So I think that's where the conversation breaks down. Is I'm actually interested in what are the principles behind not necessarily Trump's anything, but um, I would ask my fellow Democrats what what do you think Republicans represent? What do you think their principles are? Do you know why Republicans even exist? And, right. Um, and they can't answer that. They don't know why Republicans exist. Understood. Um, you know, so I believe in much more of a balanced conversation. Yeah, I hope that answered it. No, it does. It does. And I mean, so in that regard, and you sort of opened a window here. Um, with that being said, and to go back to the idea that your your mind isn't made up yet, who are some of the Democrats you are looking at that have caught your fancy so far? Um not saying you're going to vote for them, but you're considering them. Um, 
I like the temperament of Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he is really smart and calm and considered, and he has good answers that I think uh, bring people together. He does not, and he, he doesn't try to divide people. Um, he carries himself really well, and and would definitely be a good candidate. We're still early, so we don't know all the various and, and sundry policies that he would um, he would adopt. And I may not be in line with all of um, with all of his proposed policy prescriptions, but I like what I hear so far. Mm-hmm. Um, I um, I am. You were asking about the third party, I think, and which is I, I'm a fan of um, of Schultz. Okay, uh, Howard Schultz. The, the, the Independent. Um, so far, he hasn't said anything outside of the generic, you know, we all have to come together, enough fighting and, and all that. Um, so I like to hear people that are not warriors. I think we've had enough of that. Um, what about someone like Amy Klobuchar? I like Amy Klobuchar. Um, I haven't heard a great deal from her, but exactly, her temperament would, would go right in line with that. Um, are there Democrats that you're thinking at this point, no way, no how? Uh, yeah, Cory Booker would be at the top of that list. <laughs> <laughs> you know, anyone shouty, I think we can avoid. Um, it, Kamala Harris is not, is not shouty. She, and, and, and in terms of her policy, uh, look, there are, the space is very crowded right now for the Democrats. So they are trying to diversify themselves and, um, find, policy areas that will appeal to the Democratic base. Uh, Bernie is talking about free college and um, is championing the Green New Deal by AOC. That was just last week. I was at his rally. <laughs> so that didn't that didn't go too well, that AOC uh, Green New Deal. But, but they're all trying to get behind a policy initiative so that there's more substance than just their character. But I think it is going to come down to personality for a lot of them just because the space is so crowded. What about Vice President Biden. Um, well, has he has he announced by now? He hasn't announced, but he's he's leading in the polls. And by the time of this airing, he may have announced. I want to put that disclaimer out there. So mm. <laughs> let's assume he does announce. What do you think of him? I think he's got to announce pretty soon or else he's going to lose a lot of the, the, the conversation that's going on right now. Um, he may be polling well, but I don't think people knows what he. I don't think people know what he stands for. Um, he's a little bit cloudy in terms mm-hmm. of what he stands for. Everyone knows he worked for Obama. Um, they know that he's a white male, so perhaps he can win against another white male. I mean, that's really all anyone knows about him. So I don't. I don't know any. I don't much, know much about him. Okay. Well, that's uh, that's understandable. Um, when do you think you'll make a choice for president? Oh. Not until the day of the election. <laughs> <laughs> really? Anything can happen. Anything can happen. Um, yeah, I think we all saw that with Hillary and, and Comey. Uh, you know, anything can happen. The scandal can break. Um, I'm interested in, first and foremost, I'm interested in the debates. I'm interested to see how a president can defend their perspective um, when it's not so easy. And, uh, and, so it'll probably come down to you know the last few months for me. Um, okay. But no, I'm I'm interested in the in the journey and following um, both 
in policy substance and also in uh, moral character, reputation, and uh, and experience, and most of all, temperament. I think this next president is going to have to be someone who has a good temperament um, if if that person is to win from from the Democratic side. And you don't like President Trump as of now, but is there any way that he could win your vote or win your vote? I should say. Yes, I always keep that option open. Yes, um, and that is a big difference between me and most Democrats right now. Um, and his and his favorability is still it is not awful among Democrats. I think his approval rating is something like thirty percent among Democrats. Um, it's in excess of 80% among Republicans. So they're not, I mean, there are mirror images of each other, but they're not, it's not 100%. Hmm. So, um, anyhow, uh, uh, I may be off on that. Um, but, you know, I would consider a vote for Trump, um, you know, uh, based on a variety of, of factors. Um, you know, he would definitely have to, I think this, this Russia collusion scandal was hanging over his head. If he adopts a calmer um, temperament and uh, you know does a much better job on policy, so far he's accomplished a couple of things. I say, I, I, as I say to anyone, you know, let's let's see what they do. And the time to evaluate is at the end when we're when we're voting. Um, I, I withhold judgment. And that is uh, absolutely you're right as an American voter. Well, I think that covers it mostly. And I definitely like to say that if you do make up your mind before the election, I'd like to have you back on the show and we can discuss what you've come up with. I'm happy to. (laughs) Good to talk to you, Art. All right, Gabe Eisner, thank you so much for joining us in the Nexus. Thank you. Pleasure. And that's our show. The Nexus is recorded in Washington and is produced by Colin Martin. Thank you for joining me. And if you like this podcast, please feel free to share it far and wide. We will see you next time and be well.